Thank you, Luke, and the rest of the team for leading us in worship through song. I, singing that last song, there was a part of me as I was thinking through, praying through that song, I, I want to say that I, I hope that you have come here to find that peace and rest. And saying that, as I was thinking about it and praying through that song and that stanza, I realized as I'm saying that, I'm, I'm hoping that you're going through something that enables you to have to fight for peace and rest. So it's a, it's a dangerous prayer. But I pray, and, and I know because the world is filled with cares and troubles and worries and trials, as we just sang about, I know that all of us have come into this space with some aspect of care, of worry, of concern, of testing, of trials, of difficulty. I don't know what it is for all of us, but I know that all of us have something because we have a heartbeat. And so I pray that you would, in this moment right now, I pray that you would be living out that song, that you would fight to find hope and rest and peace. Finding, as he promised, perfect peace and rest. There's no way to find that unless you first admit, I need that, I don't have that, and it can only be found in Jesus. So Jesus is your answer for hope and peace and rest. And I pray that you would find that this morning. And honestly, you have come to a perfect morning to live out those words in Daniel chapter 11. We will see the sovereign king over all things, and that will give us peace and rest. So with that said, I invite you to take your copy of God's word and turn with me to Daniel chapter 11. Daniel chapter 11. If you are here for the very first time, we've been studying through the book of Daniel, verse by verse, starting in Daniel chapter one. And we have made our way to Daniel chapter 11. We only have this chapter and the next one, and we're done with the whole book. The first half of the book is narrative. It's stories that most of us are familiar with, things like Daniel and the lion's den, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, things like that. And the latter half of this book, uh, many of you have told me you were not familiar with it, or maybe you read it and you thought, I don't know what this is about, and you moved on. So this is the prophetic section. This is a, um, a, a historical lesson on the prophecies that God has given to his people through Daniel. And as we come to Daniel chapter 11, we actually come to the largest prophecy in the entire book. And as I read through it, thinking back on last Sunday, last Sunday was the Super Bowl, uh, if you watched the Super Bowl, if you watched the commercials, um, I, I, we didn't watch commercials. We just uh, paused the thing and skipped through the commercials because they can be garbage for my kids' eyes and minds and mine too. So I don't want to watch them. Um, so we don't watch the commercials, but those 30-second spots went for $7 million. $7 million for 30 seconds of airtime. And some of those spots, I, I know from watching in the past, you've probably seen a commercial or two where it gets to the end of the commercial and you realize, I have no idea what you're selling. I have no idea who you are. What's this company? What are you trying to tell me? And you just get to the end of it and you think, what was the point of that? Wasted $7 million. Reading through Daniel 11, I think that you could easily walk away with that same sentiment. What's the point of this? You read through it, it's very lengthy, it's 45 verses, it's very academic, it's very historical. And you read through it and you go, I don't get it, what's the point? 
That sentiment is all throughout commentaries. There were commentaries that I read this week that said, this chapter should never be preached. It should be taught in a classroom as a lecture through history, but it should never enter the pulpit and be preached as a sermon because there's nothing in here that can be preached. Obviously, I would disagree. Why, why is the sentiment there? I, let's, let's press into that sentiment. I think it's there because these verses are so intensely historical. There's no explicit application given to us. Go and do this. It's very long. It's the longest of all the prophecies in the book. It's the most detailed of all the prophecies. It's the last of all the prophecies. It takes an entire chapter, 45 verses in 11, and then a few verses in chapter 12 to get through this prophecy. It's a massive span of human history. It literally goes from Daniel's time to Armageddon. So it's huge. John Calvin, when he was preaching through the book of Daniel, wrote a commentary on it, and he wrote 40 pages just on the verses that we will be studying this morning. There is absolutely a place for the academic look at these verses. And you know, uh, if you've been at CBC for any amount of time, you know that I am a historical nerd and I could totally nerd out on these verses. But I think that we need to remember where these verses are situated. Remember what we studied the last two weeks, Daniel chapter 10. It was the biggest prologue to this prophecy. We had the context given to us in Daniel chapter 10. We have the content of the prophecy in Daniel 11. And then we have the conclusion of the prophecy in Daniel 12. 10, 11, and 12 all fit together. And there was a massive introduction to this prophecy. It wasn't like Gabriel is just telling Daniel, hey, I got one more word for you. Here you go. Now move on. He said, before I say anything, I need to, I need to give you a vision. Christ shows up. A pre-incarnate Christ shows up, speaks to Daniel. We just sat in that moment of holy awe over who Jesus is. And so I think that we would, we would be in error if we move to chapter 11 without remembering the, the prologue to chapter 11. There's a reason why this chapter must have a weightiness to us as we go through it. Not an academic understanding, but a weightiness, an awe. This is meant to produce wonder in our hearts. And I think Daniel chapter 10 gave us that realization. Dale Ralph Davis says, chapter 10 is the most impressive introduction to any of the sections of this book. And so that means that what such a weighty introduction introduces must be weighty material indeed, and therefore ought to be preached. So that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to go through the first 20 verses of these, this amazing chapter. And I believe that as we go through it, we will see awe and wonder leaping out of these verses. Let's read it together and ask God's blessing on our time. Daniel chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. Now I, and that's the angel who was speaking previously in chapter 10. In the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood to strengthen and to be a fortress for him. So now I will tell you the truth. Daniel, I will communicate the prophecy. Behold, three more kings are going to stand in Persia. And then a fourth will gain far more riches than all of them. As soon as he becomes strong through his riches, he will arouse the whole empire against the kingdom of Greece. And a mighty king will stand and he will dominate with great domination and do as he pleases. But as soon as he stands, his kingdom will be broken up and parceled out toward the four winds of heaven, but not to his own descendants, nor according to his dominion with which he dominated for his kingdom will be uprooted and given to others besides them. 
Then the king of the south will grow strong along with one of his princes who will grow strong over him and obtain dominion. Indeed, his dominion will be a great dominion. And after some years, they will form an alliance and the daughter of the king of the south will come to the king of the north to carry out an equitable agreement. But she will not retain her position of power, nor will he continue to stand with his power. But she will be given up along with those who brought her in and the one who fathered her as well as he who strengthened her in those times. But one of the descendants of her line will stand in its place and he will come against their military force and enter the fortress of the king of the north and he will deal with them and display strength. And also their gods with their metal images and their desirable vessels of silver and gold he will bring into captivity into Egypt. And he on his part will stand back from attacking the king of the north for some years. Then the latter will enter the kingdom of the south, but will return to his own land. His sons will wage war, so they will gather a great multitude of great forces, and one of them will keep on coming and overflow and pass through, and that he may again wage war up to his very fortress. And the king of the south will be enraged and go forth and fight with the king of the north, and the latter will cause a great multitude to stand, but that multitude will be given into the hand of the former. Then the multitude will be carried away. His heart will be lifted up and he will cause tens of thousands to fall and yet he will not prevail. The king of the north will cause, again, cause a much greater multitude than the former to stand. And at the end of those times, of those years, he will keep on coming with a great military force and much equipment. And in those times, many will stand against the king of the south. The violent ones among your people will also lift themselves up in order to cause the vision to stand, but they will fall down. Then the king of the north will come up, cast a siege ramp, and capture a well-fortified city. And the might of the south will not stand, not even their choicest troops, for there will be no strength to make a stand. But he who comes against him will do as he pleases, and no one will be able to stand in opposition to him. He will also stand for a time in the beautiful land with destruction in his hand. He will set his face to come with the authority of his whole kingdom, bringing with him an equitable proposal, which he will put into effect. He will also give him the daughter of women to destroy it, but she will not take a stand for him or be on his side. And he will turn his face to the coastlands and capture many, but a ruler will make his reproach against him cease. Moreover, he will repay him for his reproach. So he will turn his face toward the fortress of his own land, but he will stumble and fall and be found no more. And in his place, one will stand who will have an oppressor pass through the jewel of his kingdom. Yet within a few days, he will be broken, though not in anger, nor in battle. Father, we read these words and they are all historical to us. And already reading them, our hearts and our minds might be asking, so what? How are we going to walk away finding hope and peace and rest that we are looking for and searching for in these verses? And Father, we want to admit right off the bat, and submit ourselves to you knowing this is the very God-breathed words of you, our King. They are inspired, inerrant, infallible. They are no less important than other places of your holy word. And so we submit to your word. And God, we're excited to see what it is that you will teach us this morning because there is such great riches in these verses. Help us not to be academic. Help us not to be theoretical in our understanding of who you are in these verses, but to apply what these verses are saying about you and about us 
to apply that to our lives today where we would be changed. So Holy Spirit, do a work in our hearts as your word is read and your word is preached. Do a work in our hearts that we would receive your word with humility and teachability and be asking all the way throughout, God, what is it that you are calling me to do? To think differently, to feel differently, to live differently. We would align ourselves with Samuel who would say, speak, O Lord, your servant is listening. And we would ask that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law. We need your help. And we know that you love to give us help. So be pleased to do that this day. We pray it in your name. Amen. Daniel chapter 11 can easily be broken up into historical sections. If you wanted to outline it, you could outline for our time this morning, Medo-Persia and Greece is verses one through four, and then Egypt and Syria is verses five through 20. Uh, in chapter eight, we looked at Medo-Persia and Greece. There was a lot of ink that was spilled over those uh, nations and people groups. In this chapter, they just get four verses, which I think is really fun, and we're going to look at it. You could also outline this whole chapter, and this is what we're doing. This is how we're going to uh, divide up this chapter. It's really three main sections. Number one, we'll look at today, it's Ahasuerus to Antiochus. We already have looked at Antiochus Epiphanes, and you also know who Ahasuerus is. He is Xerxes from the book of Esther. So Ahasuerus to Antiochus Epiphanes. Then next week, we will look at Antiochus Epiphanes to the Antichrist. And then the following week, we will look at the Antichrist all the way through the Battle of Armageddon. And then we will have two more sermons after that in the book of Daniel, and we will be done. We will have finished our time in Daniel's amazing book. So there's a lot of ways you can outline this. But this morning, what I want to do, as you can see, as we read through it, it's incredibly historical. There's a lot of information here. And so what I want to do is just walk through it, hopefully giving some sense of understanding to these aspects. And then I want to press the issue. Why? Why is this here? What are the implications that flow from this text that would change our lives today? So let's start in verse 1. The angel, again, it was either an unnamed angel or it's Gabriel, says, now I, in the first year of Darius the Mede, so remember this is coming uh, two years after that, this vision, so he's going back saying in that first year, I helped Darius. I stood to strengthen him, to be a fortress to him. And we talked about how in the first year of Cyrus's reign of Darius the Mede, Cyrus and Darius are the same person. We talked about how in the first year of his reign, he let the people of Israel go back, the exiles return to Jerusalem. And about 50,000 Jews went home to Jerusalem. My guess is Michael and Gabriel were helping make that happen as we looked at last Lord's Day of the spiritual battle that's going on behind the scenes. So he says, now I'm going to tell you the truth. Now I'm going to tell you the prophecy. There's been enough uh, of an introduction here. Now I'm going to tell you the prophecy. Behold, three more kings. So we've got Cyrus. Three more kings after him are going to arise. They're going to stand in Persia. And then a fourth will gain far more riches than all of them. And as soon as he becomes strong through his riches, he's going to arouse the whole empire against the kingdom of Greece. So that verse, verse two, is 200 years of history in one verse. It's 536 to 331 BC. Four Persian kings. It's talking about Cyrus. After Cyrus, four Persian kings will arise. There's uh, Cambyses, there's Smyrdas, there's Darius the Great who assassinated the previous guy, and then there's Xerxes. 
I don't know any of the first three, but we all know Xerxes, right? We know that guy, Ahasuerus from uh, Esther. Somehow you get Xerxes in Greek from the Aramaic of Ahasuerus. I don't know how that works, but that works that way. He is called Xerxes. He's most commonly referred to as Xerxes. And he, we know from human history, tried to conquer Greece, initially winning a couple battles against them and really humiliating them. And they got really angry. And when Alexander the Great uh, rose to power, he dominated, uh, took his revenge and absolutely decimated Persia because of that. That's described here in verse two. Verse three, a mighty king will stand. That's Alexander the Great. And he will dominate with great dominations and do as he pleases. He will rule, some of your translations might say, rule with great authority and do whatever he pleases. One of the earliest biographers of Alexander the Great was a man by the name of Quintus Curtius. And he wrote this, quote, he seemed to the nations to do whatever pleased him. So he could do to the nations whatever pleased him. That's exactly what's happening here. And we've talked about Alexander the Great. We talked about his dominance in the world empires. At the same time, while he did whatever he pleased, we know in Daniel chapter 8, verse 22, that Alexander the Great was that broken horn that would ultimately be broken at the age of 33. He will die. That's verse 4. As soon as he stands, his kingdom will be broken. So right when he gets to the place of dominance over the whole known world, he's going to die. And he did. And verse 4 says, his kingdom will be broken up and parceled out to the four winds of heaven. So four different places where the kingdom that Alexander had will be parceled to. And we talked about that as well, the four different aspects of his kingdom that were governed by four different people. But then it says this, it adds this, not to his own descendants. So Alexander the Great is going to die and it's going, his kingdom is going to be split up into four sections, but the four people that will govern those sections are none of Alexander's descendants. And lo and behold, that's exactly what happened in human history. Alexander wanted, he, he had three offspring who could potentially take over for him and they all got murdered. And so there was nobody that could actually take over who was part of his bloodline. So the kingdom was parceled out to four different people. Cassander took over Macedonia and Greece. Uh, Lysimachus took over Thrace and portions of Asia Minor. We've talked about those two individuals in the past, but now we're looking at two individuals. These last two, Ptolemy took over Egypt and Seleucus took over Syria and Mesopotamia. Those two people just rise to prominence in this text. Because right in between Egypt and Syria is Israel. And Israel is going to be the middle of the compass for the rest of this chapter. So Syria is up in the north above Israel and Egypt is in the south below Israel. So the king of the south is Egypt. The king of the south, all of those kings are the Ptolemies. And then the kings of the north, that's Syria. And all of those kings are either Antiochuses or Seleucids. And so we're going to walk through and we're going to see how they dominate in uh, the intertestamental period between the Old Testament closing and the New Testament opening. So we have four verses that tell us a lot about human history and a lot about what's going to happen and transpire between Medo-Persia and Greece. And Alexander the Great is finished. Stands up, falls away, done. As one commentator says, he served God's plans and purposes and off he goes off the stage, done. Same thing with Medo-Persia. Medo-Persia was raised up for a purpose. God brought uh, the people of Israel back into Jerusalem through Cyrus, through the means of Medo-Persia. 
But once God was finished with using them, off to the dustbin of history, as one commentator says, they go. So here's implication number one. Implication from just verses one through four. Implication number one is this. We must see the successes and setbacks of civilization from God's standpoint. We must see the successes and the setbacks in all of civilization from God's standpoint. Alexander the Great, historians have written volumes and volumes about his life and God says, I'm gonna give him one verse. He does whatever he pleases and yet he's a broken horn instantly destroyed. Dale Ralph Davis writes, it hardly seems right for Alexander the Great to get whisked off the page in just 27 Hebrew, Hebrew words. And now all the attention is focused on two random dynasties. But Alexander doesn't matter that much, not here. The reason for the zoom lens on the kings of the south and the north is because the people of God, a substantial number of them, will be back in the land of Israel, living on that sliver of land at the east end of the Mediterranean, that crossroads where Africa, Asia, and Europe come together. Well, they will be scrunched between and subject to the whims of these two opposing dynasties. And then he concludes by saying this, next to the fortunes of God's people, Alexander's empire doesn't matter at all. So we, we look at Alexander's empire, we look at his dominance and we think that is a major success. And we look at the persecution of God's people and we say, that's a major setback. And here God is saying, no, it's the exact opposite. Over here, it's not a success because Alexander the Great is instantly whisked away and we don't even need to worry about him. And God's people will take center stage. History is filled with events that we would call successes and events that we would call setbacks. And both of them are in God's sovereign control. What this should create in us is a divine equilibrium, a sense of balance. So that when the successes, and we could put that in quote, when the successes happen for God's people, we're careful to not just say, that's it, we want it all. And when successes happen for evil people, we're careful not to say, that's it, we've lost it all. And when setbacks happen for the evil people in the world, we're careful not to say, see, we'll be fine. We have to be having that sense of divine equilibrium. Don't be surprised when you read things in the news, when things are going badly and you wonder, what is this world coming to? Don't be surprised. We should have a, a centered sense of divine equilibrium. That person who you might think is the worst person possible to get elected, becomes president, and you think, that's it, we're done for? No. What might think, in our eyes, we might think is a setback, God might turn that out to be a success. Or the person that you think might be the savior of the nation is elected, that might look to you like success, but maybe it's a setback. Don't rise and fall over the latest political events and don't rise and fall over the latest evangelical events. God is sovereign over all of them. Don't be anxious. Don't be fearful. Don't worry. God is on his throne and there are going to be successes as we see them and setbacks as we see them, but they're all in God's plan and he will even it out in due time. So number one, we must see successes and setbacks in society and civilization from God's standpoint, not ours. Implication number two. Implication number two that's very clear in this whole section. 
We must delight in God's sovereignty over every detail of human history. We must delight in God's sovereignty over every detail of human history. Not trust, though we should do that, but delight. Because you can say intellectually, I know that God is sovereign, but if it doesn't lead you to worship, to reverence, to awe, to fear, to wonder, and to delight, then you're not interacting with the sovereignty of God the way that you ought to. We must delight. We must love that God is sovereign. We must cherish that reality and enjoy it and find our purpose in it. This is really, if you want to have an outline, you could put verses five through nine to see the divine sovereignty over every human uh, detail in human history. But the whole book, the whole chapter, the whole uh, understanding of what's going on is so specific in its detail to what's happening in human history. It's so specific that people who don't want to believe that the Bible is true, when they read this, which I would say is an apologetic for the truthfulness of the scripture, look at Daniel writing in the 500s BC, he's writing about these events that are happening hundreds and hundreds of years later, and they actually happen exactly how he said they would. People who don't want to believe God's word say, well, that's because Daniel didn't write it in the 500s. Some guy who wanted to pretend that he was Daniel wrote it in the 100s. Looking back on the events and saying, as if they were prophetic, this is what's going to happen in the future. So it's all a lie in their mind. One way we can answer that, which we've already done, is Jesus himself said that Daniel wrote the book of Daniel. Matthew chapter 24, verse 15, when he says, uh, when you see the abomination of desolation happening, which Daniel spoke of. So he's talking about Daniel. He knows Jesus confirms that Daniel wrote Daniel. That's enough for me, but let's add another layer here for why I believe that this book is actually written by Daniel. And it's, a, it's an argument from grammar and words and the timing of when these words were used. We know, just like in English, we know that words and grammar and sentences and the way we talk evolves over time. For instance, 400 years ago for English-speaking people, if I wanted to get your attention, I would have said, hear ye, hear ye. When was the last time that you heard somebody say that in a public setting to get your attention? right? Normally it's either ladies and gentlemen or just listen up, right? So we, we know that words can change and evolve. And so we've seen that even in our own language. Same thing happened back then. So if we're talking 400 years removed from 500 BC to 100 BC, there's a lot of grammar that changed. There's a lot of words that weren't even in usage back in 500 BC. And they show up uh, people would say, well, look, this is Daniel. Some you know, guy is trying to pretend like he's Daniel, but these words were used in 500 BC and they weren't used again in 100 BC. So it would be like for us, if you read Shakespeare at all, Shakespearean language, we know that that happened hundreds of years ago and it's very different from the way that we talk today. When we re read that, we interact with that, we go, obviously this was written earlier than today. We know that. That's the same thing that's happening here. You can read this and go, well, this clearly isn't you know, word usage and grammar, sentence structure that was used in 100 BC. It was used in the 500s. But the argument goes, last argument, the argument goes, yes, but it was somebody in the 100s using this old archaic language. Like if you and me wanted to write today in Shakespearean language and say, see, it's Shakespeare's works. It's, it's, it was written back then. But here's the problem with this. And I, I just think this is so cool because of the way that language was disseminated back then, because of the way writings were disseminated back then, the people in the 100s BC didn't even know that that language existed. They didn't even know that those words existed. There were words that completely went out of usage because things weren't so heavily passed around. 
So it would be, to use an example to, to fit into their argument, it would be like me writing something down in Shakespearean language, in Shakespearean English, when I don't even know who Shakespeare is or how Shakespeare writes or what it sounds like. So I'd have to take a time machine, go back there, figure that out, come back here, write as if I was writing from back then. It doesn't work. It's absolutely impossible. So all that we are going to read was written by Daniel, 500s BC, before, hundreds of years before these events happened. The reason I say all that is because these verses are not God passively predicting what's going to happen. These verses are God authoritatively being the architect of what's going to happen. He's not just saying, and then this, and then this, and then this, and then this. He's saying, I'm going to move in human history to bring about my purposes and accomplish my plan. And that's why we must delight in God's sovereignty over every aspect of human history. Let's go through this quickly. Verse five, the king of the south. So again, we're dealing with south and north. So we've got Israel in the middle. North is Syria. South is Egypt. King of the south, that's the Ptolemies. North Syria, that's Seleucids. The king of the south, that's a Ptolemy king in Egypt. Uh, there are six of them that are going to be referenced in this chapter. And then there's going to be eight uh, of the kings from the north that are going to be referenced in this chapter, four of them are Seleucid kings, four of them are named Antiochus. So we've got kind of our kings. Also, by the way, you know a lot of the people that flow from this. Cleopatra is involved in this chapter. She's a descendant of the Ptolemies. The Hasmoneans, of whom Herod the Great comes from, he's involved in this. The Maccabeans, obviously we'll get to them next Lord's Day. They're involved in this and what they did in bringing about freedom for the people of Israel. Also, the Pharisees and the Sadducees show up. They're going to be involved in this. They're going to grow from this time period. And then also the Zealots. They're actually in this section of Scripture. The, Simon the Zealot, one of the disciples, he's in, or his people group is in uh, this portion of Scripture. The, the um, inception of the Zealots happens here. So we've got a lot of people that we actually know uh, who grow from these verses. So the king of the south will grow strong. So that's Ptolemy the first. He's going to grow strong along with one of his princes, Ptolemy II. He's going to go stronger over him. And after some years, they're going to form an alliance, the king of the south. So Egypt's going to try and form an alliance with Syria. So Ptolemy II, by the way, Ptolemy II is the guy from uh, tradition that is the one who commissioned the, the work of the Septuagint, the Old Testament, Hebrew Old Testament being translated into Greek. That was by tradition uh, Ptolemy's doing, Ptolemy II. So Ptolemy says, hey, let's not fight. Let's have a political alliance. And the way that we're going to do that is through marriage. I will give you my daughter uh, to the, the king in the north, to your son. And we'll have a, a union and a peace treaty. And you can see that here. After some years, they're going to form an alliance, verse 6. And the daughter of the king of the south will come to the king of the north to carry out this arrangement. Now, I could go through a bunch of historical things in this text that are awesome, that I would totally nerd out on. I'm just going to do one, okay? I'm going to do this one because I think it's fascinating and awesome, and I think you will too. So, Ptolemy II, ruling and reigning in Egypt, says, I'm going to create, this is about 250 BC, I'm going to create a politi political alliance with Antiochus II in the north. Ptolemy II, Antiochus II. I'm going to send my daughter to him. They're going to get married. We have an alliance. We're happy forevermore. Problem. Antiochus II is already married. Antiochus II says, fine, I'll do this. He divorces his wife, whose name is Laodice. So like Laodicea, her name is Laodice. So he says, I'm going to divorce you to marry this other woman, Ptolemy II's daughter, Berenice. I'm going to marry her. 
by the way, how do you think Laodice feels right now, right? Just kick to the curb on the, you know, we're done being married because I got to be in a political alliance. No fun. So two years after the arranged marriage, Ptolemy II, who forced the arranged marriage, died. Antiochus says, well, then we don't need this arrangement anymore. I'm done with this deal. So he divorces Berenice, Ptolemy II's daughter. And he goes back to Laodice and says, hey, let's get married again, because we had a good thing going. How do you think she feels now? It's like, what am I to you? What is this crazy? This is like soap opera drama, right? And so she says, fine, I'll marry you. And after marrying him, she poisons him. She poisons Berenice. She poisons the, the kid that they had together. And every bridesmaid who was in Antiochus and Berenice's wedding, she kills all of them too. So be careful the next time somebody asks you to be a bridesmaid. There's a lot that can happen. All of this murder that she does catches up with her because Berenice had a brother, Ptolemy III, and uh, he goes and kills Laodice and decides to try and start a fight again. So the peaceful arrangement didn't work out. Ptolemy III begins a retaliation against uh, the, the murder of his sister, uh, attacks Syria with a huge army. Um, the war that he initiated lasts five years from 246 to 241, and he ends up defeating Syria, capturing the capital, and then executing Laodice. So, um, verse 8, if you go down to verse 8, and that's what verse 8 is describing. One of the descendants of her line will stand in his place and he will come against their military force and enter the fortress of the king of the north and he will deal with them and display strength. We're also told, Josephus tells us, that when Ptolemy III went back to Egypt, he went back with 4,000 talents of gold, 40,000 talents of silver, and uh, 2,500 objects that had been in the cities and the temples of the northern kingdom. And that's what's described in verse 8. Also, their gods with their metal images and their desirable vessels of silver and gold, he will bring into captivity to Egypt. And on his part, he will stand back from attacking the king of the north for some years. So he did it. He moves back and he stops his rampage. This is just incredible detail. And this happened in the 500s. Daniel is being told this. And this happened in the 200s. 300 years before these events, God gives details to Daniel that are so specific to the people. This person, the daughter of this king, is going to be sent over here for a peace arrangement and a peace agreement, but then she's going to die, and this person's going to try and avenge. Like, so specific. Leon Wood says, the detail of this history as presented in Daniel 11 provides one of the most remarkable predictive portions in all of Scripture. When God is the architect of the future, when he is telling us what's going to happen, he's doing that for a number of reasons, but one of them is explicitly told to us on Isaiah 46, verses 5 through 10. That's the portion of scripture where God is saying, why do you follow idols? They're pieces of wood and stone and metal, and they can't listen, they can't hear, they can't see, they can't do anything. And he says, then look at me. Look at what I can do. I am God, and I can declare the end from the beginning. So he says, if you can see that I can tell you what's going to happen before it happens, then you can know I am God. This is an apologetic for God being God. But also notice, so high-level view of God's sovereignty. Look at how amazing he, he knows everything. He knows every detail. He is fashioning and ordering and orchestrating everything. But 
Look at the detail. He's talking about Berenice. He's talking about one person. Do you ever feel like God is sovereign over the big things, right? He's, you know, dealing with the tides of the ocean and where the moon is and all the stars. He's over the big things. I don't know if he really knows what's going on in my life, personally, specifically. And maybe he knows, but I don't know if he really cares. These verses tell us he knows and cares about the smallest person, the, the lowliest individual In the tiniest detail, God is orchestrating, planning, using, and the rest of the scriptures say that. He knows the number of hairs that are on your head. And this is all in this chapter with pagan people. How much more so is God, does he know, love the ones who are cherished, like chapter 10 said, of Daniel being highly esteemed, greatly loved. One pastor says, God is just as involved in the details of your life and mine as the events that unfold with rulers, nations, and empires. God knows just as many details about your life as he knew about all of these events before they transpired. And he doesn't just know, but he's orchestrating and arranging them because he is the ancient of days who is on his throne. And this should lead us to two specific actions. Number one, we should not be anxious because God is sovereign. Nothing is taking him by surprise. Isn't that strange to think There is a being in the universe, God, Yahweh himself, there is someone in this universe who has never thought, hmm, that's interesting. He's never thought that before. He's never thought, huh, never knew that. That's a cool fact. He's never had an epiphany. He knows everything. And so if he knows everything, we should say, God, thank you that you know what's going on. I don't, we we don't know anything. God, you've got this. So it should lead to a fight against anxiety, but it should also lead us to action. God, you know what's going to happen. I want to get involved in your plan. He's given us enough understanding in the scriptures to know, hey, we can get involved in this. We can go where he's leading, follow where he's directing. So how are you doing the work of God, following along with what he's required us to do as believers? How are you involved in the building of his kingdom? How are you involved in the building of his church? He says, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will never prevail against it. So how are you and I involved in the help of building that? Don't just trust God's sovereignty, delight in it and follow along with it. So implication number one from these verses, we must see the successes and setbacks in civilization from God's standpoint. Number two, we must delight in God's sovereignty over every detail of human history. And finally, number three, the last implication for this morning is we must fight against the utter futility of fighting for control. We must fight against the utter futility of fighting for control. And we've already seen it because here's a, a nation down here in the South saying, hey, we can control peace. And it doesn't work. Hey, there's a nation in the North saying, hey, we can control safety and it doesn't work. There's a constant fight. There's a constant battle. But let's keep going in these verses and we'll cover them quickly. Verse 10, his sons will wage war and they will gather a multitude of great forces and one of them will keep on coming and overflow and pass through that he might again wage war up to his very fortress. So there's a constant waging of war. And again, this is North and South. This is Syria against Egypt. And we have verse 11, the king of the south. That's Ptolemy the fourth. We've moved on. We're, Ptolemy the third is done for. We're moving on to Ptolemy the fourth. One commentator says, Ptolemy the fourth was a cruel, debauchee, 
who began his reign by murdering his own mother, then his wife, then his sister, then his brother. Sounds like a nice guy. Then he gave himself over to a degenerate dis, dis, dissipation with male and female sex partners and finally succumbed to disease in the year 203 BC. That's this guy. That's a, not a nice dude. Verse 11, Ptolemy IV. So the king of the south will be enraged and he will go forth and fight with the king of the north. The king of the north is Antiochus III. And he has an army of 62,000 foot soldiers, 6,000 cavalry and 102 elephants. But they lose, as verse 11 says, the latter will cause a great multitude to stand, but that multitude will be given into the hand of the former. So Antiochus is going to lose. Verse 12, the multitude will be carried away. And Ptolemy, Ptolemy IV, his heart will be lifted up. He beats Antiochus in a battle uh, called the Battle of Raphia. Antiochus loses 17,000 troops there where the Egyptians only lose 2,200. And he becomes prideful. Ptolemy becomes prideful. And we all know what God does with prideful people. So he won't prevail. That's the irony of this statement in verse 12. He will cause tens of thousands to fall, yet he will not prevail. He's going to win this battle, but he's ultimately going to lose the war. It looks like he's going to win the war, but he's going to fail. Because God steps in and says, enough. Enough. Verse 13, the king of the north will again cause a much greater multitude than the former to stand. So this is about 13 years later. Antiochus wants to make a comeback, and that's verses 13 through 17. He gets super angry because he was defeated, and so he goes back to war against Ptolemy. In verse 15, he builds the siege ramp, captures the well-fortified city. Verse 14 tells us, in those times, many will stand against this king of the south. The violent ones among your people, so even Jewish people will be fighting. Those are the zealots. The violent ones among your people. This is where we first encounter the zealots. They're going to lift themselves up to try and bring about the prophecy of Jerusalem being a place of peace. So they're going to fight against Egypt, but they're going to fail. They're going to fail. So verse 16, uh, he who comes against him will do as he pleases. No one will be able to stand in opposition to him. He will stand for a time in the beautiful land with destruction in his hand. Beautiful land is Israel. He will set his face to come with the authority of his whole kingdom, bringing with him an equitable proposal, which he will put into effect, a peace treaty. He says, I'm going to give you a peace treaty so that we're all happy. Syria is going to have a peace treaty with Egypt and a peace treaty with Jerusalem. He's, they're owning Jerusalem right now. But it's not going to work. It's not going to work. The peace treaty is made, verse 17. And he will give him the daughter of women to destroy it. So this is Antiochus giving his daughter to Egypt. This is uh, Cleopatra being given over. And he wants to give Cleopatra over to Egypt as a way of saying, let's have a spy on the inside. Let's have somebody there married to the Egyptian king because she, he thinks that she's going to spy on his behalf and give him communication. But instead, she ends up loving her husband more than her dad. And so that plan fails. That's what's being said in verse 17. She will, not stand, she will not take a stand for him or be on his side. And that makes him very angry. So verse 18, he gets super angry and he goes to fight against the coastlands. This is Greece. Starts to fight against Greece. Just take out his aggression on somebody. Fights against Greece and Rome steps in and Rome says, I wouldn't do that if I were you. And he says, I'm going to do it anyway. And they say, what part of don't do that? Did you not understand? And so they destroy, Rome steps in and starts to destroy Syria and control Syria. The way that they did that back then, one of the ways they did that was saying, we will control you and own you and you have to pay us taxes. And they would heavily tax people. 
So verse 18, he captures, uh, he's captured many in Greece, uh, but a ruler will make his reproach against him cease. And moreover, he will repay him for his reproach. There's the, the money. You have to give us money. So he's going to turn his face toward the fortresses of his own land, towards the temples and fortresses and loot his own property. He takes money from his own land to pay those things off. But then he will stumble. He will fall. And he will be found no more. This is Antiochus III. He died and nobody found his body when he died. Back then, everybody looked, where did our king go? Nobody found his body. So verse 20, in his place, the next king in line was the guy named Seleucus IV. And he begins his rule in his place. One will stand will, who will have an oppressor. My Bible says an oppressor passed through the jewel of his kingdom. The jewel of his kingdom is uh, in Jerusalem. Uh, some of your Bibles, uh, I think ESV says an exactor of tribute. It's somebody that's going in getting taxes. And I've, I just, I love that. Look at the differences in this translation. Exactor of tribute. I think an IRS agent was on that translation committee. We're not, we're not taking tax. We're exactors of tribute. Thank you very much. And then I think us common folk said, no, it's an oppressor. And we translated this, right? No, taxing is oppressive. I just, I love the way that this is described. Uh, an oppressor goes through somebody who's getting all the taxes and oppressing the people. And so he begins his reign and it's not going very well. And within a few days, middle of verse 20, he will be broken, though not in anger or battle. So nobody is like angry against him in a battle and murders him in battle. We actually know through history that he was poisoned. And it's a question of whether it was accidental or not. So everything comes to pass exactly as God said. The end of verse 20, the North is ultimately winning. So here we are back up from human history. Here we are. Egypt in the South, Syria in the North, Israel in the middle. Ptolemies in the South in Egypt, they were owning and controlling Israel until uh, the whole mess with uh, Ptolemy III and, and then the, the transfer over to Ptolemy IV. And then the Syrians come and they take possession of Israel. So now we're under Seleucid control in the north. The Syrians, the, the Antiochuses and the Seleucids, they are in control. The north ultimately wins. The Ptolemies lose control of Israel and the Seleucids gain control. That brings us to the period of Syria's dominance over Israel. Up until that point, it had been Egypt, but now Egypt is gone. They're relegated back to their own land. And it's Syria from 199 to 175 BC. And that is where the stage is set for a transfer of power to go from Seleucid III to Antiochus IV, or Seleucid IV, rather, to Antiochus IV. And Antiochus IV, you and I, we've studied this guy in the preceding chapters in Daniel. He is Antiochus Epiphanes that we will look at, Lord willing, next Lord's Day. But I want you to see, back and forth, Ptolemy II, third, fourth, fifth, uh, Antiochus II, Seleucid III, Antiochus III, Seleucid IV, Antiochus IV, just back and forth. Look at the utter futility of trying to gain power, dominance, and control. This text doesn't just want us to hear the racket of war and the rumors of war. This text wants us to see and feel the utter futility of war and of trying to gain dominance. One commentator says on one level, 
This is the continual story of wars and rumors of wars. As one human ruler and empire after another seeks to gain power by cunning or force, and yet, though the tide in the affairs of men comes and goes, in the end, it accomplishes precisely nothing. The balance of power in earthly politics may shift, but it never comes to a permanent rest. On the one hand, therefore, Daniel 11 shows us the fallen world pursuing the wind and finding it elusive. What do power and politics gain for all of their toil? Or in the words of Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 13, is it not from the Lord of hosts that people weary, them, weary themselves only for fire and nations exhaust themselves for nothing? Well, you and I aren't in control of armies. I mean, let's be honest, we're barely even in control of ourselves, right? But my question is, where are you fighting for control in your life that looks like this? absolutely futile. You want to feel in control. You want to be in control. This morning, I think God would say on a grand scale, you're not in control. And we can clearly see that. And on a personal scale, your successes and your setbacks, those are all under the sovereignty of God. And they might look a certain way to you now, but in God's vantage point, they're very different. And we must fight against the futility of, of clinging to that sense of control. If you ever feel like I think I'm in control right now. That's just the worst trick you can play on yourself. That's the biggest illusion. And God in his kindness will do something in your life to remind you you're not in control. Why do all of these conflicts happen? Why do we fight for control? And James 4 tells us what causes conflicts and wars among you. Is it not the passions that wage war in your hearts you lust for something, you want something, but you don't get it, and therefore you fight to get it. It's true about nations and empires, and it's true about personal relationships. So my question to you is, number one, where are you fighting for control in your life? Saying, I want it to go this way, and I'm, I'm tooth and nail clawing my way to get it to go my way, instead of saying, God, you're in control. And second, what passions in your heart are motivating you to fight where you should say, you know what, God, I'm giving this to you. What are the passions that wage war in your heart that have caused conflicts in interpersonal relationships? These verses, though, yes, academic, they preach, they absolutely give us a reality of God and his sovereignty and of us and our sinfulness. They give us great implications, many of which we didn't even get to talk about this morning. But number one, we must see the successes and setbacks in society from God's standpoint. Number two, we must delight in God's sovereignty over every detail of human history. And number three, we must fight against the utter futility of fighting for control. This section, this whole chapter, is what Dale Ralph Davis calls a literary sledgehammer. When you look at the sheer weight of them, he writes, one after another, God is working behind the scenes what a massive comfort, he says, this view of history provides for the people of God. How often God's people worldwide must feel like they're caught in the gears of vicious regimes, simply mashing them at will. But our text teaches that our Lord brings judgment not only at the climax of history, but he also injects futility into their design so that their schemes in the end lie in shambles. Not that he always does this, but the text by its repeated examples imply that this is his tendency, that he does this far more often than we may be aware. How could God's people bear to live 
if God simply allowed the self-styled deities of this age to fulfill all of their plans. No, God steps in and breaks it, ends it. Psalm 33, verses 10 through 11, the Lord nullifies the plans of the nations. His counsel stands forever. History has unfolded in these verses, just like God said it would. Kingdoms and their kings all come and go. They live and they die. They win and they lose. And God is still on his throne, seated, not worried, not rushed. Psalm 2 says that he just sits and laughs. Try to fight against him. It's not going to go well. Daniel's telling us there's always going to be wickedness in the world. There's always going to be wars and rumors of wars. There's going to be famine. There's going to be trouble. There's going to be persecution and distress. He had them in his day. We have them in ours. And it will be present all the way to the end of the age. Nevertheless, those who know God are to stand firm, live righteous lives, resist evil, and live out accomplishments as God would prosper them to do. There are so many divine passives in this text. God gives, God gave. God's the orchestrator behind all these things. Kings and kingdoms are like nothing to God. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 15, behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. It's a beautiful picture, like you're pulling up a bucket out of a well, and as you're pulling up, there's drops of water just spilling off the side. That's what he says the nations of this world look like, just a little drop out of the bucket. It's like if you had a set of scales and you wanted to make sure they're perfectly accurate, you were to look at them with a magnifying glass, and you saw one tiny little speck on one side, God could take a nation, put it on the other side, and say they're equal. It's nothing. And that's why I think chapter 10 is so massively important to understand chapter 11. Because we've just seen, I mean, there are two main groups, but we've just seen nine kings rise and fall. That's only including Syria and Egypt. If you go back to Medo-Persian Greece, we've got 14 kings that have risen and fallen in 20 verses. And chapter 10 showed us that God is sovereign on his throne and he is building a kingdom that will never go away. So chapter 10 reminds us as we get into the weeds of chapter 11, we need to pull back and remember, wait, what kingdom are we a part of? Even the people of Israel, they get to go back to their land in verse 16, they're back in their glorious land, but it's not at peace. It's not at rest. So too, you and I, we are citizens in this world, but we are citizens of another kingdom. We will not be at rest in this world. Brothers and sisters, don't look for that rest in this world. Don't look for the rest of heaven and the peace of heaven, that rest that we will get one day there. Don't look for that rest now but cling to the hope that it's coming. Cling to the hope that it's coming. This world's not my home. I'm a citizen somewhere else. And the citizen, the, the kingdom that I am a citizen of, my king is sovereign over every detail. He cannot lose. He turns setbacks into successes. He governs and controls every single aspect of human history. Romans 8 28 and following tells me, for my good, he's a king like no other. And therefore, I can have a peace like no other because I'm a citizen of that kingdom.
Father, thank you so much for these verses. I pray that this morning we would ask that question, what kingdom are we a part of? God, I I know that we come before you often in prayer and we ask you to do the impossible over and over again. And I would ask it again, do the impossible that we cannot do on our own to open eyes right now in this place to see what kingdom they are a part of, that we would be honest with our hearts. Have we truly bowed the knee to Jesus as king or do we still fight for our own autonomy, our own kingdom that we want to make with our own desires? God, thank you for Jesus who came to destroy our autonomy and to say, I will be your king graciously, lovingly, giving himself at the cross so that my sins could be forgiven and I could be ushered in not only as a citizen of a new kingdom, but adopted as a son of a new family. Father, thank you for the gospel that is the reason we have to have peace with you and to be brought into that kingdom. And we know throughout all of human history, looking back, And throughout all of human history that yet to come, you are faithful. You are always faithful. And we rest and we trust in your faithfulness today. Even as we sing, Father, I pray that we would ask our hearts, where are we struggling to trust your faithfulness, to trust your goodness and your sovereignty? Where are we struggling to delight in your control? And that we would relinquish that even as we sing, that we would give that to you. God, be our guide, be our strength, be our peace. We love you, we pray in your name, amen.